Today we start a new series called uh, The Power of Focus. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this and preparing for it, and I thought back to when I was a kid and stuff that we used to do as a kid. And I remember as a kid, I'd walk through parking lots and walk through malls and walk through parks. And, and sometimes I and my friend or my brothers or whoever I was with, we'd, we'd sit there and walk through and we'd, we'd watch the ground for dropped quarters or dropped dropped money or, or something to see. And, and we'd, you know, we'd go through it and we'd see it and we'd, we'd grab it. And what would we say when we grabbed it and found it when the other person was with us? I don't know if you said this, but we always said, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? And it was especially true, uh, that phrase was especially painful and true. And I don't know, maybe you just had really nice siblings and nice friends. But, you know, when I lost stuff, my older brothers, who were just enough older that they were really a lot better at finding stuff than I was, would go help me find it. And if it was like my favorite toy, when they found it, they'd hold it up and they'd say, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, and just taunt you with it, right? So maybe it brings back some painful memories for you. But I, I also remember that there were some people that I was with who were always better at finding money because they were much more intentional in their focus Every time they went to a mall, every time they went to a park, they'd do that. I even know a guy in his 60s who actually goes to parks now with his metal detector just because he's funny. He's very successful, but he just thinks it's fun to go find money in parking lots. And he's still the type of guy that if he sees a penny, he'll stop and pick it up. You know, any, any, anybody like that here? You still stop? Okay, we got a few penny pickers. You know, focus is a powerful thing in life. And uh, Jules Verne wrote a novel called The Mysterious Island. And in this, story, in this story, it's a story about these five guys who escape from prison by hijacking a hot air balloon. And the story basically goes like this, where they get in the hot air balloon and they get aloft and get in the air and the wind blows them out over the ocean and, and they're trying to make it to land on the other side of where they're going. And as they get out there, as hot air balloons do in uh, normal weather, they tend to cool. It started dropping in elevation and they'd get really close down to the ocean. They're going, oh man, we're going to end up in the drink a long ways away from where we want to be. And so... You know, the first time they, they throw out their shoes, they throw out their weapons, they throw out all the non-essentials that they can think, and, and it, it lightens the load, and they go back up, and then a little while later, they're coming down, and they're seeing those waves lapping at the bottom of their basket, and, and they go, okay, it's better to be hungry than it is to be drowning, so they take all the food, and they throw it over, and it lightens themselves up, and they go back up, and not, not long after, they're down there again, right by the ocean again, and almost in the drink, and, and one of the guys has the brilliant idea, okay, these ropes that hold the basket together, if we just tie them together and we sit on the ropes, we cut the basket free and maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll be light enough to make it. And that ends up being true in the story. They barely make it to land by cutting the basket and hanging and sitting on the ropes in the bottom of the hot air balloon and, and they escape. And when I think of this, it, it, to me it's a, it's a powerful word picture for us about focus in life and about priorities in life because it's so easy when things are safe, when things are going along good, when things are, when things are just comfortable. It's so easy to think about all these things that are essentials to us. And sometimes we get so focused on those things that we think are so essential that, that we maybe even sometimes miss what really is important. Because I think for some of us, this, this thing of focus, sometimes we get it on the wrong thing. We think this is, something's essential that's not. And we end up 
unfortunately, maybe not even like these guys ending up uh, in the drink and ending up getting bounced by waves and, and paddling for our life because, because we've kept things around us that have, that have taken us where we don't want to be. Today, we're going to talk about focus from, this, from the standpoint of the first priority, the, the big overall picture that if we don't get this right, then, then we don't get anything right. And then over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some other things that uh, we tend to focus on and, and, and that maybe get us where we don't want to be and talk biblically about some things that might help us change our focus and get to the places we want to be. But, but as, I, as I enter this series with you, I, I, I suspect there's probably maybe three different reactions going on. Some of you are probably sitting out there going, man, I'm, I'm so screwed up in my focus, I know I need help. And, and so your reaction to even a th- the thought of a series on this topic is probably saying, man, I, I'm either really happy because I need some answers, or yeah, maybe you're a little bit fearful because I don't know if, I, if God's going to ask me to do something that's going to change and create conflict in my marriage or, or ask me to do something I'm not sure I want to do. And, and if you're there in that point of fear of, of, of wanting to talk about focus, I want to encourage you that God is a good God. He's a God who has your best interests in mind. He's not going to ask you to do something that doesn't bring anything but life to you. Some of you probably feel pretty good about your focus, and you should because you spend regular time on a regular basis focusing on what does the Bible want me really to prioritize my life around? What do, what do I really need to look at and focus on in life? And, and so you've, you spend so much regular time that you're probably in a pretty good place, and, and maybe your reaction to a series like this is, well, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to look at other areas. I, you know, I, I realize that life is all about us being willing in a healthy way to walk into the light and look honestly at who we are. So you're probably in that place, and I want to commend you for that place. That's the place I wish I was all the time, and I think most of us wish we were. And some of you may be thinking, like I, I tend to think sometimes, that I think my focus is good. I think I'm thinking about the right things. And, and then I don't know about you, but I go away on vacation, and I come back, and I go, whew, I need to ask some questions. So I hope, if, if, even if you're at a place where you think, yeah, I'm focusing on the right things, I got, I got the answers, we're going the right way, I hope that you'll at least be open to take a look at, uh, at the issue of focus in much the same way that this clip does. Don't you love it? I haven't seen that movie yet. I want to go see it, especially off, the, off that cliff. Your focus needs more focus. You know, there's this beautiful story about the overall focus in life. You know, sometimes, sometimes 
the problem in our life is caused by the fact that we aren't focusing on the big picture, the right big picture. And there's this beautiful story in a book that, written by Max Lucado. It's called Tell Me the Secrets, and, and it's got some great applications. They're short, wonderful stories. Would you just indulge me and let me read you one of the stories? This is about an old man, 90-year-old man, talking about what he wishes he would have focused on different in his life. And he was a jewel trader. The story goes like this. It says, I'm a seller of stones, he says. I travel from city to city. I buy jewels from the diggers in one land and sell them to buyers in another. And I have weathered nights on stormy stormy waters. I have walked through desert heat and I have dined with kings. I have drunk with paupers. And my hands have held the finest rubies and stroked the deepest furs. But I'd trade it all for the one jewel I never knew. It was not for lack of opportunity that I never held it. There was a chance in Madrid when I was young. No, it was not for a lack of opportunity. It was for the lack of wisdom. The jewel was in my hand, but I exchanged it for an imitation. And now I fear my days will end without ever knowing the beauty of the precious stone. He goes on to say, the precious stone that I've never known is true love. Oh, I've known embraces and I've, I've known beauty, and, but I've never known love. If only I'd learned to recognize love as I learned to recognize stones. My father taught me about stones. He was a jewel cutter. He would seat me at a, on a table before a dozen emeralds and he'd say, one is true. Would you tell me which one is true because all the others are false? I would ponder and study one after the other and finally I would choose and I was always wrong. The secret, he would say, is not on the surface of the stone. It's on the inside of the stone. A true jewel has a glow. Deep within the gem, there's a flame. The surface can always be polished and shine, but with time, the sparkle fades. However, the stone that shines from within will never fade. With the years, my eyes learn to spot true stones, and I'm never fooled. The stones I purchase are authentic. The gems I sell are true. And I've learned to see the light within. If only I'd learned the same about love. But I've been foolish, dear reader, and I've been fooled. I've spent my life in places I shouldn't have been, looking for the someone with sparkling eyes, beautiful hair, a dazzling smile, fancy clothes. I've searched for a woman without her beauty, but no true value. And now I'm left with emptiness. Once I almost found her. Many years ago in Madrid, I met the daughter of a farmer. Her ways were simple. Her love was pure. Her eyes were honest, but her looks were plain. She would have loved me. She would have held me through every season. Within her was a glow of devotion of the like of which I've never seen since. But I continued looking for someone whose beauty would outshine the rest. How many times since have I longed for that farm girl's kind heart, her sweet smile, her faithfulness? If only I'd known that true beauty is found inside, not outside. If only I'd known how many tears I would have saved. I'd trade in a moment a thousand rare gems for the true heart of one who would have loved me. Look closely at the stones before you open your purse, he warns. True love glows from within and grows stronger with the passage of time. Heed my caution. Look for the purest gem. Look deep within the heart to find the greatest beauty of all. And when you find that gem, hold on to her and never let her go. 
For in her you have been granted a treasure worth far more than rubies. And he sums up his life lesson with this simple phrase. He says, seek beauty and miss love. Seek love and find them both. If we miss the overall picture in life, we don't find anything. If we miss the one thing that we're to focus on, the one point, then nothing else really matters. You know, maybe your life is not focused on the wrong overall big picture, though. Maybe you're just like most of us who you've got the big picture figured out. You've got, you've got the right focus for the big picture, but all these other things in the press of life just change us. And you find yourself 20 years into your marriage asking yourself, how did I end up here? Or just because of the demands and the pressure and the hard knocks of life, you end up 15 years into your career, career and you go, well, do I really want to be doing this the rest of my life? Is this all there is? You know, while we were in the Northwest, we got to sit down and have a walk and then sit down at a park right next to just a beautiful little pond and talk with an old friend. It's a guy that I've known for years and done training with. He's a pastor friend of mine. And, and uh, before we had left uh, Oregon a little over a year ago, he and about 40 other churches on the West Coast that I'd been working with started this process of consulting because they were churches that had been either just plateaued and not, not growing, not doing anything, or had been declining for years. And And so my wife was sitting there and asked this friend of mine, you know, what have you learned? What's the one thing you've learned this past year from this process of consulting and coaching that you've been through? And this is a guy that I I, I think is one of the wiser guys I've met in my life. I, I love him. I trust him. He's a good friend. He's a great leader. And he looked at me and said, you know, I forgot how simple the focus of life really was about, really was. I forgot how simple the focus was on what it meant to follow Christ and what it meant to be a healthy church. You know, the press of things. Sometimes we need outside people to help us refocus. Because sometimes the the lesser supporting goals around us cloud our vision and cloud our focus and and all of a sudden we end up at a place we don't want to be. You know, uh, Chris, uh, Chris, my friend, basically said to me, he said, you know, all these other things we got focused on, uh, a new building and, and getting, getting these things, all these different types of things going in the church, they all are good things. They're all supporting goals, but they, they got so prominent and so prevalent that they, that they clouded the real, the one thing that we needed to be about. The same is true in business. I was sitting with another friend in, in Eugene, and, I, and he told me a story about a prominent business that I knew about their circumstances a little bit, but I didn't know the backstory on the circumstance. It's a business that's owned by some wonderful people I know. They've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions and to the church, and they're, they're godly people, wonderful people. They own a business in Eugene that is, that is one of the number, it was for a while, I don't know if it still is, the number one forest products 
uh, supplier in the Oregon and Northwest area. Forest products meaning things like uh, uh, wood pellets for your stove or mulch or landscape supplies or, or things of that nature. And just a wonderful business. And they're out now down to their third generation of family ownership. And they, they, they ask this question, you know, how can we expand the business to continue to allow the family to be involved? And a few years ago, they made this decision that the way to do that was to buy their own landscape business. It made, an, it made obvious sense, right? They have, all the, they have all the basic supplies. They could easily pass it on to the landscape business. It's all in the same arena. Makes sense. But their focus is on the wrong thing, and the result was not what they wanted. The result was all of a sudden all the landscapers in town stopped buying their raw materials from them because now they were the competitor, and this other business in town took off while their business was closing locations, this other business was opening new locations and going, it's just a simple thing of focus, whether it's, whether it's business or, or whether it's our, our walk with Christ or, or even whether it's parenting. We have this picture of what we want our family to be like, and we have these ideals of what we want for our kids. And if we're good parents, which all of us want to be and all of us are, We want our kids to have all the great opportunities that are going to help them be confident and help them grow up and be successful and and experience the joy and all the success they want in life. And so so our goal as parents is to constantly open new opportunities to them. So we look at them and say, okay, where's the best coach and who's the best coach to help them because they want to play basketball. And so we get them in travel basketball. We get them in travel soccer. and We get the best coach or or maybe we get the best teacher because they're in music and we try to get them into the best orchestra or maybe we want to make Make sure that they have the better education than we had, so they have better opportunities. So we, we constantly push and want to get open opportunities open for them to take the AP and honors courses and, and get the best tutoring. And, and all those things are good. But sometimes do we not need to ask our, ourselves the question, but at what cost to the family that we want? Does the pace, does the pressure of all of these things produce in our kids confidence? Does it produce our kid, cause our kids to become compassionate, to have a heart for God and for others, to know how to communicate effectively, to, to, commu- to, to be faithful friends and to have good self-care habits of, of taking care of themselves well in all the areas of their life? Or does sometimes the abundance of good opportunities result in just teaching them to medicate their real needs for relationship with God and others by by staying busy, by performing, by being successful. Boy, these are tough, tough focus questions. But the power of focus is an amazing thing because when we, when we focus on the right thing, we yield success. The power of focus either takes us to success or, or failure. It takes us to greatness or just mediocrity. It takes us to being satisfied or just always coming up just 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 a little bit short, a little bit frustrated, kind of feeling okay, but just not really there in the areas of our life. The Bible talks about the power of focus in, in many, many different ways. And, and, and we're going to look at a couple of ways that Jesus talks about it, and, and as, as well uh, King David in the Old Testament. One of the ways Jesus talks about the power of focus is in Matthew 5, 6. He says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Hunger. It's one of those base needs. It's, it's not something that's negotiable. It's something that drives us. It's something that controls us. It's something that we have to fulfill. If we don't, if we deny it, we die. It's just one of those things that drives us. What are you hungry for in life? What's driving you in your life? You know, it's not just a food issue, and it's not just a spiritual issue. It's, it, we, we hear about it all the time in sports, and we hear about it in, in our workplaces. If you've ever heard a coach or a, or a business leader give a motivational speech, they're always saying, what are you hungry for? What do you want? You know, we heard a great example a couple weeks ago from, from Scott Marrier as he was preaching about the fact that early in his career, he, he was pursuing something that it didn't bring satisfaction. It was one of those things that it sounds good, it sounds great, it sounds, it sounds happy, it sounds prosperous, but it brings us to the point of, of just, is this all there is? Isn't there something more? And hunger is a conscious felt need. We feel it. If you're hungry, you know it. Sometimes I doubt my kids know it because they can wake up in the morning and go start doing something and then forget to eat until about 2 o'clock. I was never that way. Does anybody else have kids that way? But eventually it gets to them. They eventually get crabby because their blood sugar is low, and then they eventually come and they eat. So either way, it's going to still drive them. But for so many of us, hunger is one of those things that we can also mask. You know, we can, we can eat. We can eat lots. We can be full but not satisfied. We can be full, but not healthy. I had a friend. His name's Andre Sosnowski, South African guy. And uh, Andre was, uh, was born into a fairly well-to-do South African family, owned a very successful business. He grew up in South Africa. They had servants. He never had to do anything. Now, Andre was a hard worker, but he never had to take care of laundry, clothes, feeding himself. He never had to do any of that type of stuff. And he kind of walked through life uh, struggling with kind of a perception that some other people should serve him. So when he was thinking about getting married, it kind of became apparent that he might want to learn to not expect his wife to be the servant. So Andre decided to move back to South Africa. He'd been living in the Tulsa area where we were and, and live on his own. No servants, live on his own, cook for himself, do his laundry, do everything for himself. And uh, he was there for about six or seven or eight months, and then he just got really sick. And Andre was, Andre was a very athletic, healthy guy. He, he, I mean, he worked hard all his life. He was a commando in the South African military. Then they discovered that he was really good at tennis, so the Army put him on the National Army tennis team, and then he went on to a college scholarship in tennis. And he was a very physically fit, healthy, strong guy. But he went to the doctor and said, man, I am just so sick. I have no energy. What's the matter with me? The doc couldn't figure it out. He looks healthy. He did all sorts of blood tests and all the blood tests and all the tests came back. And he goes back for the visit to find out what's wrong. And the doctor says, well, Andre, your blood tests look just like a Somali poster child for famine. You are suffering from malnutrition. He said, what are you eating? Andre said, Cocoa Puffs. What else? Feeding myself on Cocoa Puffs. He was full. He always had enough. But he was never satisfied. And he wasn't healthy. And so often in life we can do the same thing. You know, 
some of the other things that Chris started to share with me about his church. They've been leading some change. He said, you know, it's an interesting process because, uh, and, and some of these were thoughts that kind of I extended from what he said, but they come from the core of what, what Chris was sharing. He said, you know, over the last number of years, people would kind of gradually leave frustrated from the church, and I could never really understand why. And he said, I really, and this is, this is kind of the analogy that came to me as he was talking. It's, it's almost like the church, because its focus had gotten distracted from the real big thing, these subsidiary things had become the focus that they were always eating but never full, always eating but never healthy, you basically had a bunch of people who were developing type 2 diabetes. Now, you can, you can be eating wrong, you can be full but not healthy, and you can go for 20, 30 years before you develop type 2 diabetes, but if you're always eating and not focusing on the right thing and not being healthy, eventually disease happens, or eventually, in the worst case scenario, if you're just a Cocoa Puffs guy, you end up like Andre in a spiritual sense. So he said people would leave and they'd be frustrated and angry saying, there's, there's just not, it's, I'm not full, there's something wrong. And he said, I've run into the other problem too. Now that we've recognized that our, our focus wasn't right, that we didn't have the priorities right, that we're starting to change to make those right, now all of a sudden I've got people who, when we make those changes, they say, I'm full, why are you making changes? But what they don't realize is they're one, five, ten years away from spiritual type 2 diabetes in their life because we're not eating healthy. We're not doing, focusing on the right things. And And so it is with our lives, individually, corporately. It's so easy for us to mask our real needs, filling them on the wrong focuses. And then we blame God when we get sick. Or we blame the church when all of a sudden we're left wanting. And it's because we've been developing this for years because our focus hasn't been right. Jesus sums up the primary focus best, I think, in Matthew 6.33. And this is a theme for our series. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Seek first, above all else, nothing before it, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Jesus' parables as a whole, if you read them closely, are all about this theme. His parables are all about describing the values of the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus in one place, just to emphasize how important this is, puts two parables back to back that both say basically the same thing. In Matthew 13, 44 through 46, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in fine pearls, who who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Seeking the kingdom, there is no other treasure, not even all the treasures put together that are worth more than understanding what the kingdom of God is about and of living in the values and under the leadership of the king of the kingdom. There's no greater focus. If we don't get this right, nothing else in life will be right. 
Hunger can be satisfied, but it can only be satisfied when we get this right. And then the promise is all these other things will be added to us as well. But the kingdom, the concept of the kingdom, it's a foreign foreign concept to us. I mean, we grow up in a country where it's okay to say whatever you want. It's okay to protest whenever you want. It's okay to, it's, it's, it's deemed okay to burn a picture of the president in effigy. It's even deemed okay in some places to burn the American flag, the symbol of the country or the kingdom we live in. There's this whole culture of freedom of speech for us. And now, let me, let me just make sure you hear me. I'm not making, and when I'm saying this, I'm not making a biblical statement on democracy or absolute monarchy. And I'm not making a biblical statement right now on freedom of speech. So don't walk away thinking I did. All I'm saying is the ideas, the the attitude, the, the thoughts of a citizen, of a king and a kingdom is very different than what we normally think like. You know, while on vacation we... Uh, we got to go to the Buck 50 Theater, the place where you, you kind of want to take a wipe and wipe everything down before you sit down. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, it's a Buck 50, so, you know, you get to see the movies cheap, right? We could take three of us to the movie for the price of one blockbuster rental. It was great. We went and saw the movie Robin Hood, and Robin Hood had a few illustrations in it of this whole concept that, that really I thought were profound. I mean, you see this guy, this guy playing a character, I forget his name, who was... He was the right-hand advisor to King Richard. And now King John, the foolish king, is in power, and he's trying to be a good advisor to him. But King John is doing all this foolish stuff. But you see this guy realizing every time he starts to gently suggest something a little bit wiser, and he sees that King John is going somewhere else, you see him just bowing and expressing respect for King John and allegiance to him. And, and there's, just this, there's just this difference. It's... It's freedom of speech in a kingdom is you can speak as far as you can without getting your head cut off. But there's this absolute line. And again, I'm not making a comment on freedom of speech. I'm just trying to give you the concept and the idea of the difference of living in a kingdom. There's this, there's this absolute line of authority. There's this absolute line of obedience. You are either a citizen and a good citizen or you are not. And if you are a good citizen, you are a protected citizen by the king. If you aren't, you aren't. But we have a hard time with this concept of absoluteness. The fact that the Bible asks us for absolute surrender of authority. Not just a part of our life. Not just the parts of our life that we're comfortable with. Not just our spiritual beliefs or, or not just our, our beliefs about family and parenting and marriage, but our beliefs about money, our beliefs about our job, our beliefs about our vocation, our beliefs about our call, our beliefs about who we are. He wants it all. There's this absolute line that he wants. And the, and the Bible refers to the good news that we talk about of the Christian message as the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of following a good king. Now, it's not the same kind of king as John. It's not this earthly ruler who is corrupt, who all power corrupts, or uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's not that kind of a thing. It's not this foolish king. It's, the, it's this king. It's this creator. It's, it's, it's the one and only God who created us. And he's good. 
with good intentions towards us. He has a plan that He wants to bring a sweetness to your life. He wants to protect you. He wants to serve you. He wants to bring prosperity to your life. He wants to bring good things. King David understood this. In Psalm 34, he talks about the same focus by saying this. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And we look at that and say, yeah, he gives us the desires of our heart. And we think, oh, I've got lots of great desires. I've got, I I would love this and I would love that. And I'd even love to do this for you, God, because it would feel really good. When we think of desires, we think of them in terms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of our own happiness. In terms of us. But David, when he wrote this, wrote it from a king and kingdom worldview. And he didn't think of it the same way as we did. In fact, in the next verse, he goes on and says, Commit your way to the Lord, your king. Trust in him, and he will act. Commit your way. Commit your destiny. Commit your prosperity. Commit your welfare. Commit your justification. Commit the fact that God will prove you to be right in an area where you're accused of being wrong, where you know you did what God wanted you to do. Commit your children to Him. Commit your retirement to Him. Commit your vocation to Him to the protection of the king. There's no other. It's absolute, period. Absolute trust in God. King David understood this. He had lived under a king, even an earthly bad king, King Saul. And he learned the lesson of this authority, this absolute allegiance, this absolute we're going to stick together for a purpose. And, and, and he knew what it was like to be a king and how people would respond to him and the kind of authority and power he had. And he referred to God as his king. Do we trust God? Really? Fully? Commit your way to the Lord, it says. Trust in him and he will act. He will act as a promise if we're willing to accept him and his kingdom for who he is. And I want to speak for a minute to those of you who are are not committed followers of Jesus who are here. You know, uh, first and foremost, I want you to know that, that, that we don't believe we're here to convince you to follow Jesus. We believe that Jesus will show himself to you. And we want to invite you to seek because he will be found We want to invite you to make that decision at your own time. I want to encourage you to make it sooner rather than later. We're going to talk about what we believe very strongly, but we're also going to respect that you may not believe that, okay? So within that context, would you listen to me for just a moment? You live in a kingdom, and you live under the realm of a king, whether you know it or not. He's the one who created you. He's the one who created you good with good intention for your life. Now, it may have gotten messed up by lots of circumstances in life, but he still is not only the creator of the good with good intention for your life, but he's the redeemer that can make that still happen in your life. But when we don't trust him, whether we don't believe him, or even if we have committed our way to to him, if we don't trust him, 
and we operate outside the values of his kingdom, we're just going to end up like Andre. We're going to constantly be pursuing focus points. We're going to constantly be pursuing priorities that leave us full but not satisfied. Full but not healthy. It'd be like eating cocoa puffs and wondering why we're malnut- we have malnutrition. But God wants to give us a freedom. He wants to make a legacy through our lives. But you may be saying, I have so many unanswered questions. How can I follow a God when I have so many unanswered questions? How can I choose to follow Him when things just, there are so many things that don't make sense? He's our Creator. He's the King of Kings. He's the one and only God. You know, if we want to follow a God who answers all of our questions, if we want to wait to make our decision to follow God until all of our questions are answered, I'm not sure that's the kind of God I want to follow. If we have to wait until God answers all of our questions to our satisfaction so that we feel like He makes sense to us fully and, and we can judge from our own perspective that, that, yeah, we should follow Him, then that kind of a God is pretty small if he's going to fit within my box because I'm pretty small in this whole universe. None of us are the brightest guy on the block. I want to invite you today, if you're one of those people who have not made that commitment, to make the commitment and bring your questions with you. We serve a God who is not afraid of us talking honestly to him about our fears, about our failures, about our frustrations, about our questions about our hurts, about our pains, about our successes, about our hopes, about our dreams. He is an amazingly patient God. He just wants us to experience the beauty of His kingdom. But it's a struggle. It's a struggle for all of us. It's an ongoing struggle for all of us because there's this absoluteness that we're not used to. We're always used to having an option, a debate, a disagreement, or going a different direction. There's this absoluteness about submitting to this king and his kingdom, and about saying nothing in our life will be more important than us learning to do this. That's always a struggle for us. But today we get to celebrate communion together. And communion is really the symbol of that covenant that God has made with us to be a part of His kingdom, to be under His kingship, to experience His goodness, to experience His forgiveness. It's an invitation to walk like He did because when Jesus came to earth, even though He's God, He walked in submission to the Father in an absolute sense, all the way to death. He held nothing back. Nothing was held back. He followed in an absolute sense. So today, I, I believe you got communion on the way in. If you didn't get it, raise your hands and the ushers will, will give you some. Uh, I need one too as well here, Dustin. Um, and I want to have some questions put on the screen here that I want us to just reflect on as we take communion today. Thank you. What are the areas that keep you from absolute surrender? the areas you doubt God's will to act on your behalf. And so you keep control of them. 
And what are the areas you believe the Bible asks you to do that frustrate you or you argue with that keep you from making that absolute commitment? Maybe if you've got a pen and pencil, write them on the back of your program and and, and just think about them. Pray over them more this week. But then I want you to go ahead and take communion. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this, this is a two-tab pull. You pull the top tab and you you get the bread. And then you pull the next tab and you get the juice. But but I want you just, just as the music plays, just to ponder these questions. And then just say to God, if you're willing, just say, God, you gave it all for me. I want my life to reflect seeking your kingdom first. And just say that prayer as you take communion. And I'll come back and close in a minute. You know, without God's kingdom as the primary focus, as the first absolute focus we're bound to experience more in life the phrase losers weepers because you know when I was a kid walking with my brother especially or a friend we were looking for shiny stuff we'd challenge each other to see who could find something and a lot of times there were so many times that we would both see something shiny and glittery at the same time when we'd lunge for it and one of us would come up with a coin and the other, come, other one would come up with a, bo- a soda pop can tab. And that's a little bit about like what life is like. If we don't get this right, we're finding soda, co- soda pop tabs on the ground. They're shiny from a distance. But they're not money. They're not valuable. Following Jesus starts here. In fact, I'd have to say it's stronger than that. No, real life, real life starts here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. And life ends with that too. There's no other focus greater. Over the next few weeks, We're going to be dealing with a number of different topics about how we focus on things sometimes that lead us to being empty instead of the things that are the values of the kingdom. Just to explore what Jesus talks about and what the Bible talks about are the values of the kingdom. But I think we could summarize today best with this little phrase. Seek my own needs and wants and dreams and always just fall just a hair short. Just not quite satisfied. But seek first the kingdom, and we get both. Lord, I ask that you'd be with each one of us. I I know, I know that we want to follow you. We want the kind of life you want for us. Lord, there are so many things that that just distract us. The the knocks we get in life when we get dinged and just the press of life. Lord, I pray that as maybe we've identified some areas that have have taken us off course, that that you would help us to discover together what it means to have this one and only priority in life, to seek first your kingdom 
your fame, to serve you well. And Lord, to enjoy the fact that not only do you call us servants of your kingdom, not only are we vassals of your kingdom, but you call us sons and daughters. You call us brothers and sisters. Lord, you are the king, the creator of all, and you even call us friend. Lord, we commit our ways to you. In Jesus' name. If you're here and and you would like somebody to pray for you, you've got a need, I encourage you to grab a friend. God's with your friends. They can pray for you. But if you would like somebody else to pray for you as well, there will be some people here available to pray for you after the service. Have a great week. Let's seek first God's kingdom, okay? God bless.